Good morning. My name is Kristen Johnson, and I'm the Shepherd of Communication here still. I was last week. I still am this week. And if you were here with us last week, you know that we are in the book of Joel once again today. And Joel is one of the minor prophets um, about whom we do not know very much. We do not know exactly when he received this message from God for God's people. Uh, But we do know that there was a locust plague that came on the land as judgment from God because of the sin of God's people. And Joel does not tell us what that sin was. And that lack of context, both the lack of timing and the lack of information about the sin, that gives a timeless um, quality to the message that helps us to see ourselves in the story. And so last week, we looked at most of the first two chapters of the book. We saw that the locusts destroyed the land. Billions, that's billions with a B, billions of locusts swarmed and ate every living bit of vegetation, which not only left the people and the animals without food, it also impacted the people's ability to worship. They could not bring the prescribed offerings to God. So Joel called the religious leaders and each and every person in the community to come together to fast and lament. This was a united act of repentance, turning back to God. Joel 2, 12 and 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That was the call. That was what the people were to do. And then we saw God's incredible response to his people after they did that. Verse 18 says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So God sent locusts as punishment for sin. And when the people repented, he restored the damage the locusts caused. His restoration did not rewrite history. The people still experienced God's judgment and punishment for their sins. There was real suffering and despair that happened. But God did not leave them in a place of devastation. After seeing the fullness of God's restoration, we ended last week with verses 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. God gave his people beautiful promises, and he fulfilled them. Joel's original audience, they experienced everything that was said up to verse 27 in chapter 2 including that restoration in verses 18 through 27. And then the text shifts, and it looks ahead to what God would do after the lifetime of Joel and his fellow Israelites. Some of those words have already come to be. We are living after they have occurred, and some of them are still to come. We are in the middle of this story. Joel is incredibly relevant for us. Picking up in Joel 2, 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. After Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he appeared to numerous people. 
before he ascended to heaven. And as we probably know, his last words to his followers in Acts 1-8 were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples returned to Jerusalem and prayed while they waited. Acts 1.15 tells us that there were about 120 men and women, followers of Jesus, gathered together. And on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 tells us, beginning in verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So God's people, who were scattered and living in many nations, had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. And suddenly, they could all hear their own languages being spoken by Jesus' followers. And that would have been shocking to have a bunch of Galileans speaking and everyone hearing in their own language. Acts 2, beginning in verse 14, says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since since it is only the third hour of the day, so about 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Those are Joel's words coming out of Peter's mouth. Peter actually quotes all the way through Joel 2.32. And then Peter tells exactly how Jesus' life and death and resurrection demonstrate that Jesus is the Savior the Israelites had been waiting for. And Peter says, beginning in verse 32 of Acts 2, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter says the words Joel received from God many generations earlier about the Spirit being poured out, about sons and daughters prophesying, young men seeing visions and old men dreaming dreams, and male and female servants prophesying, because they have the Spirit on and in them, Peter is saying that is no longer in the future. What happened at Pentecost and what continues to happen when people accept Jesus for who he is and what he's done and receive the Holy Spirit, all of that is a fulfillment of Joel's words. We are living in what Peter called the last days, just as Peter himself was. The rest of Joel's words in chapter 2 that Peter quoted say, beginning in verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Joel spoke five times about the day of the Lord. We saw three of those last week in chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 11. And we said the day of the Lord is when God intervenes to deal with sin that has reached a climactic point. 
The day of the Lord is when God directly responds to sin. Sometimes God deals with the sin of the nations, the oppressors of his people. And sometimes God deals with the sin of his people. That's what happened in what we looked at in Joel last week. Ultimately, God will deal with all sin of everyone, everywhere, a final day of the Lord. And what we see in this portion of Joel that Peter quoted at Pentecost is that Jesus' death and resurrection was another day of the Lord. Jesus came in response to sin. It was not the final day of the Lord, which Joel and even the disciples might have anticipated it would be. Now, we know now that when Jesus came, he did establish the kingdom of God, but he did it in a surprising way. It is the now and not yet kingdom of God. We have a way to eternal life and right relationship with God right now on earth through Jesus dealing with sin. But the kingdom in its final state has not yet come to be, and it will when Jesus returns. This is good now, but the best is yet to come. In verse 32 of Joel 2, when Joel says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, he meant everyone in the family of God, the people of Israel, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus threw that door open wider. Because of Jesus, everyone, Jew and Gentile, that's all of us, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, slave and free, who turns to God and calls on the name of Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit, just like those 120 in the upper room on Pentecost did. And everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, slave and free, has equal standing at the foot of the cross in the family of God. Paul reiterates this in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, that's a Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Every person who calls on the name of Jesus and enters the family of God equally receives forgiveness. They receive forgiveness for sin, and they equally receive the presence of the Holy Spirit. Each is an equal part of the body of Christ, gifted to serve the body and sacrifice for it. And as both Joel and Peter make clear, that includes prophesying, speaking, or teaching God's truth. It includes the young and the old, the men and the women, and those of every social status. This is a day that Moses longed for. Numbers 1129 b says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. We are living in that reality now. God places his spirit on and in each person who surrenders to Jesus and accepts his forgiveness. Remember, some of Joel's words, they came to be in his life. Some of them came to be generations later, and we are still living in that period of time when they are a reality. And some of Joel's words will come to be in the future. In Joel's day and in Jesus' day and in our day, there is still time to repent to turn to God, to call on the name of the Lord. Before that final day of the Lord arrives, every person has the opportunity to call on the name of Jesus. In Joel chapter 3, we see some of what is yet to occur, beginning in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, 
and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. God will judge all the nations, all the people. Israel does not have a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat in it, but in Hebrew, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh is judge. So the Valley of Jehoshaphat and in verse 14, the Valley of Decision are both indicating the place of God's judgment. God judged his people in Joel's day, but that was not the final judgment for all of humanity. To rescue his people, God has to deal with the sin of those who are not his people. When Joel delivered this message, that was a split between Israelites, the people of Judah and Jerusalem referenced in verse 1, and everyone else, the Gentiles. But we are living after Jesus redefined who God's people are. It is no longer about whether you are an Israelite or a Gentile. Now it is about those who have called on the name of Jesus for forgiveness and new life and those who have not called on the name of Jesus. Verses 1 through 3, they show us God's outrage against inhumanity, the abuse and misuse of human beings by other human beings. The text expands on this in Joel 3, 4 through 8, and we'll see more of this in the book of Amos in the next two weeks. And then Joel 3, 9, to the end of the book, it paints a vivid picture of events that are yet to come, events that will come at the end of history. But they are not a comprehensive picture. Joel is not trying to give us a play-by-play of everything that's to come. It's more like a highlight reel or a collage. He's zooming in on moments and scenes to give us a sense of what's to come. Look at Joel 3, 9 through 10. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. God's judgment is coming, but this is not going rogue. This is not people choosing when and how to act. God is not turning people loose as avengers. God will lead this effort himself. And while there is war imagery, remember that we are living under Jesus' words to love God and love our neighbors which includes our perceived enemies. Think of Paul's words to the Roman Christians in Romans 12, beginning in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are the words that should describe us, God's church, as individuals and collectively. God will avenge. It's not our job. But did you notice how he said it would happen? Look at Joel 3.10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. This is backward from what Isaiah says in Isaiah 2.4. He, God, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The same words almost exactly are used in Micah 4.3 as well. God likes the imagery of weaponry being turned into farm implements. But here in Joel, he paints the opposite image, farm implements into weapons. And some scholars see this as an ironic call for the nations to arm themselves and come face God. And that makes sense. Look at what Joel says in verses 11 and 12. 
Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. The nations, that's all of the people who are not following God, who have not called on the name of Jesus for salvation, they can come ready for war. But ultimately, they are coming to God's judgment. This is not a fair fight. There is no adversary who can face God on anything close to equal footing. Joel 3, 13 through 16, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The final day of the Lord is coming. Everyone who is on God's side, all those in his family, will be both safe and saved. Everyone who is opposed to God will come to understand exactly who God is in unmistakable ways. God's power and justice will be meted out to those outside the people of God. And as we talked about last week, being in relationship with God is not about ritual religious motions. We are not trying to check all the right boxes in the right way at the right time. We are pursuing relationship with God out of our love for him because he first loved us. As followers of Jesus, we want the world to understand that God's desire is for everyone to be in right relationship with him. God does not desire to punish people. He will deal with sin, but he longs for people to turn to him first. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just as God wants everyone to repent and to turn to him, that should be our desire, a genuine longing for every person to come into right relationship with God. Church, can that be said about us? Is our earnest desire to see people repent and find new life and freedom in Jesus? Or is our desire to see people get what they have coming to them? Are we living such good and loving and kind lives that the people in our circles want to know about this Jesus we follow? Or do the people in our circles hear us spewing disgust and disdain for people who disagree with us? Are we eager for God to punish? Or are we eager for people to repent? Are we eager to be God and judge? Or are we eager to be God's ambassadors, inviting people to call on the name of the Lord? Joel 3.16, the end of it, says, The Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Do we see that as a refuge and stronghold big enough for everyone? Are we desiring for as many as possible to find peace in it? Or do we see that stronghold as a limited commodity we're content to keep for ourselves? God has room for everyone to be in his family. Do we? Are we inviting people to find refuge and forgiveness in the good news of Jesus and enter the stronghold of God's family. 
Last week we talked about the direction of our life, individually and communally. Is your life, is our life, pointed directly at God? Are our eyes on Jesus? People can tell what we're looking at. A few weeks ago, I was at a park with my mom and two of our cousins who were visiting. And because I love birds, I brought binoculars for everyone. So as the four of us were standing, kind of scattered around, we were all staring intently into this one tree through our binoculars. There was a woman walking her two dogs. Pretty soon she stopped next to me. She's looking where we're looking, and then she whispers, What are we looking at? So I pointed out the Nettles woodpecker to her. I don't know if she even saw it. And she was not there for birds. She was walking her dogs, listening to music or a podcast. But when she saw our bodies, our eyes, all pointed in the same direction, it intrigued her. She wanted to see too. What if we, church family, lived our lives like that? What if people going about their everyday lives with no intention of looking at Jesus saw us living with such unity and focus that they were curious about what our lives and our eyes were centered on. It's attractive. If we live lives that are centered on Jesus, lives where we are quick to repent and turn back to God, lives where we tell our stories, even the ones we're ashamed of, so that we can share about God's faithfulness to restore It will draw people in. It will invite people to also call on the name of the Lord, to repent and to live their own story of redemption individually and collectively with us. Joel ends this message continuing to look ahead at what is yet to come. Joel 3, 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. And strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Joel gives us a hint of what is yet to come, not the full picture. And for God's people, it will be very, very good. The locust plague, it devastated the land of Israel. There was no wine. The animals were dying, so there probably was not much milk. The streams had dried up. The people receiving Joel's message had lived through that horror. And now they were hearing him paint a picture of abundance and goodness that exceeded the restoration they had already experienced. Mountains dripping sweet wine, hills flowing with milk, stream beds flowing with water, and fresh water coming right from God's house itself. It sounds like Joel caught a glimpse of what the prophet Ezekiel saw and described in Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Ezekiel goes on to describe this water becoming a river. And then he says in verse 12, And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. What Ezekiel saw and what Joel saw, it sounds a lot like what John saw too. Listen to his words in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is good news for those who have called on the name of Jesus. We are living in the now and not yet kingdom of God, and the final day of the Lord will bring the last punishment for sin, and then the fullness of God's kingdom and life with him for all who have repented and followed Jesus. And oh, what a glorious experience that will be. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are merciful, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in steadfast love, and you are faithful to answer each person who calls on the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you that we are living in what Joel could only imagine, a time when your spirit is on and in all of us who call on Jesus a time when men and women speak your words, a time when young and old and those of every social class are equally a part of your family. And God, we confess we have not always lived with eyes and lives fully focused on you. Forgive us. Make us a people united in joys and griefs alike who have you as our center point. Make us a people eager to share the good news we've received with others so they can call on Jesus too and join all of us in your now and not yet kingdom. Amen.